This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. The one thing is the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. And those simple truths are that time is our most valuable resource. The problem is most people wake up every day spending it because they were never taught how to invest it, how to make sure that they had clarity on their priorities, how to make sure that their calendar actually reflects their priorities and not just a bunch of meetings and random to-dos. The purpose of today's episode is to really dive into some practical ways that you can achieve even higher levels of results for yourself personally. One of the three commitments in the book is this idea of moving from E to P, moving from being entrepreneurial to being purposeful. You act entrepreneurially when you rely on your natural abilities. You do it the best that you can do. Being purposeful is doing it the best that can be done looking outside of yourself or your industry for examples of other people that are doing it extraordinarily well and finding the patterns that you can then weave into your life and your approach that allow you to shatter your ceiling of achievement. This has been a major focus for me this year. And on my journey, I have realized that, well, it's a simple idea. Look outside of yourself, benchmark other examples or reverse engineer how they achieved greatness and apply it for yourself doesn't always mean that it's easy. And that's the purpose of today's episode is to sit down with somebody who wrote a book on how you can actually decode greatness. The book is called Decoding Greatness. And in it, we're going to walk you through what that actually means, how you can go about benchmarking or reverse engineering, three simple steps that you can, can take to get started immediately, and how you can apply this to your personal life as well. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, you can just head over to Decoding Greatness Book. Com. And if you buy the book through them directly and send in your receipt, you'll also get a free course walking you through how to put these principles into action. With that, let's get into this episode with Ron Friedman. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Ron, good to see you, my friend. Thanks for having me, Jeff. For for people who are not familiar with you, Ron, give them a little background on who you are and how you got to where you are today. I'm a social psychologist. And as a social, social psychologist, my focus is on top performance. So finding people who are the best at their field and then figuring out how they got there. And my first book is called The Best Place to Work. And in it, I took over a 1,000 academic studies and translated them into plain English so that regardless of whether you're a CEO or just someone starting out, you have access to all the latest science on top performance and how you can apply it 
to improving your performance at work, but also critically to creating a great workplace. In that book, there was something missing. And what was missing is that even within the best workplaces, there's a range of performance levels. Some people are top performers, others are not. I was curious about why that is. And that's the focus of this book, Decoding Greatness. Let's go back in time. Take us to the moment when you realized, okay, not only is this missing, but I have to pursue this. Because when you pursue this, it's not like you're just hiring some ghostwriter and saying, here, go, go do this. You're researching, you're investing meaningful amounts of time to create what you create. Take us to that moment and why you chose to say yes to this. Well, let me tell you something. I have never achieved anything meaningful without reverse engineering. That's the focus of this book, reverse engineering. We're going to talk about what that is in a second. But actually, no, let me tell you what that is now. And what reverse engineering means is finding exceptional examples in your field and then working backward to figure out both how they were created and how you can use those insights to create something that's original and new. In my case, my first major hurdle in my career was having to write academic journal articles. So I was a PhD student at the University of Rochester. You're running a ton of studies and teaching classes. But in order to make your way as an academic, you need to publish papers. That was really intimidating. I had no idea how to do it. And for a long time, I was stuck. And I would go to cafe to cafe, have sleepless nights. Like It was bad. I just did not know how to do it. And it was a struggle. I was putting in the effort, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. So one day, I decided to take some examples by looking at a particular writer whose work I admired. And I just ran, read one after the other of all of his articles. And eventually, I came upon a pattern. And that pattern was how those articles were written. At the beginning of the, every article was some kind of startling fact. Then he would move backwards and talk about, raise a, raise a hypothetical question. Then he'd give you a literature review. And then he'd present his thesis. Once I understood that, I had a template that I could use to write my academic journal articles. All I needed was to find some kind of startling fact, raise a question, do a literature review, and then present my thesis. Anything I've done has relied on this approach of reverse engineering examples. So it's how I wrote my first article, how I wrote my first uh, book proposal, how I got that sold, how I write Facebook ads, how I wrote my book. I mean, it's just... It's so powerful because once you have this system for finding great examples, working backwards, and identifying why they're working, you can use it on anything. You can use it on marketing materials. You can use it on presentations. You can use it to deliver a TED Talk. It's a really powerful approach. And I just knew I had to share with folks because really, this is it. This is the answer. So we've so long, so many of us are taught like, okay, you got to go find your talent. You got to go practice for 10,000 hours. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back a little bit. I think this approach is perhaps a little bit more powerful. Yeah, well, and, and the reason that we said yes to having this conversation is because it's highly aligned with the one thing, one of the three commitments that you have to make if you want to go on a path of achieving extraordinary results is moving from A to B, moving from being entrepreneurial, doing it naturally based on your natural abilities, to purposeful, looking out in the world for not what's the best that you can do, but what's the best that can be done. Because I guarantee there are people that are doing it better than you or organizations doing it better than you. And by being able to study what they do and reverse engineer how they do it so you identify the patterns, you then have a simple plan that you can follow and execute. And I just heard this idea, we call it benchmarking or referring to it as reverse, reverse engineering. You can start the race at the start line or you can start where the person before you finished. This is just getting a head start by starting where the people who have gone before you have already finished. 
Yeah, I love that. And you know, there's a, a particular industry that uses that term of benchmarking, and it's the automotive industry. And in the automotive industry, every single car manufacturer looks at what other car manufacturers are doing to the point where they're taking it apart and measuring every single bolt and identifying what the specs are. And that's their benchmark. They use that information to determine whether they are doing better or worse and looking for new ideas. And you know what? That's how cars have gotten so much more reliable over the last decade. In fact, there is a Netflix-like subscription by a company called A2Mac1 that uh, actually does all of the reverse engineering for the car manufacturer. All you need to do is to subscribe and they will send you all the individual parts, including all the map of how it was designed, the blueprints. And as, a, as an industry as a whole, this is how they've gotten better. The difference between the car industry, though, I would argue, and every other industry is that the car industry is open about this. I think everybody else is doing it too, but it's a, it's a, it's a dirty little secret that nobody talks about. And so mm-hmm. whenever I talk to creative professionals, about this book that I was working on and share with them the big idea, invariably, the the, the reaction I would get is, man, I've been doing that all my life and I've never read anything about it. I just thought I kind of figured it out on my own, even including my editor. My editor, this is how she learned how to write you know, the, the uh, synopsis of, of books that she was editing. This is how she did it. She took examples, she templatized them, and then she applied them to her, her own work. And so, you know, I think we have this view that education is something that happens when you're at college. But really, if you're not learning all the time from both your mentors and your contemporaries, you're you're standing still, you're not evolving. And it's the only way to stay relevant in any field. I remember, I forget who shared this, but they were sharing um, the story of how the drive-through for fast food came to be. And it was this guy who owned a fast food restaurant, hamburger, hamburger shop, and he decided he was going to go on a trip and he was going to study banks. And he was going from bank to bank to bank, looking for inspiration to hopefully take his business to the next level. And the trip was a complete bust. And as he was on his way back to the airport, he decided he was going to stop at one more bank to get a little bit of cash. And when he pulled into the parking lot, he saw cars driving through. And his mind was expanded. In that moment, he could visualize what would it look like if there was a drive-through lane around his hamburger shop. And the idea of the drive-through lane was born. It came from the banking industry. Interesting. This is something that when we talk about the 20% things that you should be doing in your job, for me and in my role as the co-founder and president of this company, this is one of the things that I need to be doing. And I actually have set a goal for a specific number of times. I will sit down this year. It's 24 times where I will just study an organization. It's usually very purposeful on the type of organization I'm studying. But I'm looking for inspiration. I'm asking a set set of questions. I'm looking for the patterns so that I can ask the question, what's that application for our business? I don't always protect those time blocks, by the way. But I know how important it is. And I have to tell you, that's a great story. And there are so many examples in this book that align with that of not just looking within your industry for patterns, but looking at other industries to to identify different combinations of ideas that you can introduce. And one of my favorite stories in Decoding Greatness is how Barack Obama became a great speaker. So Mm -hmm. not a lot of people know this, but when he first entered politics, he was a little bit of a disaster. He did not do particularly well. In fact, he got trounced his first race for Congress. He lost by a margin of more than two to one. And the problem, if you can 
can believe it, was that he was a terrible speaker. He was a law school professor, and as a law school professor, he was used to lecturing students. Voters did not appreciate being lectured to, and they let him know at the, at the ballot box. And so for a while, he thought about leaving politics until someone in his campaign team told him to go watch what pastors were doing in the church. And when he came back a few years later, his speaking style was transformed. He was now telling stories. He was using repetition. He was modulating his tone. He was, he was, he was, there was so much that was changed. It was almost unrecognizable. And obviously the rest is history. And what I love about that story is it illustrates that Barack Obama didn't go and find his talent. He didn't spend 10,000 hours practicing. He reverse engineered what was working in a different field and applied those insights to his field to create something mm. genuinely new. So before we, we dive into the, the framework so that people can actually put this into practice, one of the things that you do that Gary and Jay do when they sit down to write any book is they look at what are the myths that we need to bust to acknowledge the truths. What are some of the myths that you have found people believe when it comes to greatness? I'll share a couple with them with you right now. One is that practice is the key to becoming great. Now, sure, if you're practicing in a particular way, that can help you improve. But there's a glaring problem with the formula of just practicing. And that is you can't practice an idea you've never considered. And so the last thing you want when you're trying to get great is to practice in isolation because that's not how creativity happens. Creativity happens by combining ideas from different fields. So what I say in the book is that practicing without looking at what others are doing is like having intellectual blinders on. And it's the only way to evolve your approach is to study what others are doing and have a, metho- have a methodology you can use to really extract the best insights. The other uh, myth that I think is important for us to consider, and I think this is part of the reason, Jeff, why... Folks like us know about benchmarking and we know about reverse engineering, but most folks don't, is because there is a stigma associated with studying what others are doing because there's an assumption that if you study someone else's work too closely, you will become a hack or you will just steal their ideas. And that's why I think it's so critical to do the research on this. So there is a study that I talk about in this book conducted at the University of Tokyo by creativity experts. And what they did was they had novice artists come into the lab and they divided them into two groups. The one group was told to create original artwork for three days straight. The second group was told to create original artwork for one day. Then on the second day, they were asked to copy the work of an established artist. And then on the third day, they were asked to resume their original work. Then they brought in actual professional artists and they had them rate which group was most creative on the third day. And it will, won't shock you to know, because you know about this, Jeff, is that on the, on the third day, the group that had paused to copy was more original than the group that had just been original the entire time. And the reason for that was not because they just mimicked the arts, artistic stylings of the established artist. They actually went off in completely different directions. It's because the process of considering what your instincts tell you to do and then comparing them to what the actual established artist did, that forces you to consider options that were hidden in your work that you hadn't even considered. So far from making us unoriginal, copying others actually opens our my, our eyes up to new possibilities. It's totally true. Uh, I formed a relationship with a guy named Jeff Hoffman, who was on the founding team of Priceline.com. And he, we're all saying the same thing. We call it benchmarking. You call it reverse engineering. He calls it info sponging. And every day, he would 
take five minutes to look out in the world outside of his industry with genuine curiosity, just to learn. And he would write something down on a sticky note. And one day he was walking through a farmer's market and he stopped at a stand and he was looking at fruit and noticed that some of the fruit looked great and some of it was starting to go bad. And he wrote fruit on a sticky note and put it up on a board. Next day, he was studying the airline industry. Wrote airlines, stuck it on a board. Next day, he was studying the internet. Wrote internet on the sticky note, stuck it on the board. And he found himself one day sitting in the back of his chair, looking up at his board with all these sticky notes, but there were three that had been just randomly clustered next to each other. Internet, airlines, and fruit. And what he realized was fruit has a shelf life. It eventually expires. Airline seats have a shelf life. They eventually expire. And then you have the internet. And in that moment, those three dots were connected. And that was the idea for Priceline.com. Huh. He's done all right, by the way. <laughs> since then. Um, but it, I, I share... Sponging is a great word, by the way. Yeah. I, I share this just to reinforce. It's so easy to be going down a path because that's the path you've always gone down or that's the path you've been shown. Mm-hmm. And you can still be running enthusiastically in the wrong direction. Excellent point. And it's all about the mindset of A, creating the time, like you said, to mm-hmm. uh, investigate and just chase your curiosity because it's in those moments of looking down what other industries are doing that you're giving yourself the ammunition to be creative. And then B, having the tools and the methodology to take apart examples to understand why they work. And that's what this book's about, to give you that methodology. I know on my journey, I understand the importance of this, why it matters, and why specifically it matters for my role. Because one of my 20% priorities is casting the vision of the organization. And even knowing it's a 20% priority that will drive 80% of the results, it is so easy on a weekly basis to say no to honoring that time block to say yes to something that seems more important and urgent in the short run. Have you found that for yourself on your journey? Yeah, let me tell you. I uh, One of the tragedies of being an author and marketing a book is that there's no time to read anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> that you take someone who enjoy, who's good at something and enjoys doing it, and you just rip that out of their life. And that's what this experience is like. And this weekend, uh, you know, the book came out last week, so I finally have had a chance to relax a little bit and, and read. And it's just like rediscovering the thing that... It's like, it's like seeing a high school sweetheart or something. Like It's, it's like going back and, and feeling like, oh, okay, this is why I do this. And so, yeah, I think it is difficult. But I think this is why it really is critical to figure out what you're optimizing for. So, so many of us, I think, by default, go to the urgent because we don't have a systematic approach to reverse engineering our own outcomes. Mm. And we could talk about that too. That, that's part two of the book. Part one of the book is showing you how to reverse engineer and how to evolve formulas. But part two is about shrinking the gap between your ultimate vision and your current reality. And so it's all about giving you the tools to become a little bit better at execution. And to your point, I think it is, unless you have a system for figuring out what you're optimizing for and then keeping yourself accountable to those metrics, you're going to have a hard time executing because it's, it is really easy to be seduced by the urgent. Yeah. I mean, it's on my 411, which for people who don't know what that is, it's a tool that gives you clarity on your priorities. So it says, 
annual goal. It's one of my top annual goals. Benchmark 24 companies. I know that's 12 a month. I can tell you, I am massively behind. And we can get clarity on this is what we have to do this week. And even when it shows up on my calendar, it is just, it's so easy to say no to it because it's this yeah. thing that's, it's a long term thing versus right. pushing off the important and urgent things today for the things that are going to do great for the long run. I'll tell you something that's helped me, Jeff. And this is something that is in the book is uh, something called reflective practice. And so Mm. we've all heard about deliberate practice. Deliberate practice is the idea that was popularized in Gladwell's Outliers. It's the idea of finding something that you want to get good at and then identifying the elements you're not currently good at and then practicing those intently and then utilizing the feedback you get to improve over time. That's deliberate practice. Reflective practice, it's it's, uh, some, some some of the book is about this particular element of practice that you can use to elevate your performance, it has to do with practicing in the past. And what I mean by that is looking at what you've learned from past experiences to improve in the present. And so one of the tools I use for reflective practice is something called a five-year journal. You can get these on Amazon or any bookstore. The way it works is that there are 365 pages in this book, one for each day of the year, and there are five slots on each page. And the idea is you just enter three lines every day about what you learned that day or what you did that day. And you do this for a year. And after a year, something remarkable happens. And that is you get to read what you did on that day, the previous year. You do this for five years, you have five entries for each day. And every time you input a new entry, you're forced to re- to revisit those past experiences for new insights. And one of the things I've discovered in myself through this process of using the five-year journal is that the best days for me are the days when I read and also when I exercise and also when I create something new. Those are the kind of the three metrics I need to hit on to have a successful day. And if I'm missing one of those, I'm going to have a crappy day. And it's just so insightful for you to use, you know, because I, I think that that's something that's missing for you is you're forgetting how much how much energy you get out of benchmarking those companies, how much insight. And it helps to be reminded and a five-year journal can help you do that uh, on a daily basis. It's interesting. I went through a similar exercise when I brought on RVP to take over running the company. He took my job. I had to define what my job was now. And as I reflect, I literally did this exercise where I reflected back on what are the things that I'm really world-class at that also bring me an immense amount of joy and satisfaction. And I, when I looked back at my calendar, it was the days when I had time to think, which is white space, to sit down, to journal, to think, to cast a vision, making it rain. I love focusing on growth activities and being an ambassador of the brand, getting on podcasts, getting on stages. Those are the three things that really light me up. And I'm super clear on that. But this whole idea of benchmarking or reverse engineering is a newer activity now that I have the space to do it now that Jeff's on board running the company. Um, Uh So I I appreciate that connection because the days when I do it, I do get a lot of value. And I get so many ideas. And then I'm picking up the phone and I'm calling people and going, what about this? What about this? And I'm that classic visionary with the new shiny object. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's that's very helpful. I love that idea, that five-year journal. I'm going to check that out. A lot of people don't do this because they lack a simple process to follow. What is your process when you're going to reverse engineer something? 
Okay, so the first step, and this is something that anybody can incorporate into their daily life. If you already do this, congratulations. Most people don't. This is something that anybody can do in any field, and that is to start a collection. And when we think about collections, we think about physical objects. We think about wine and artwork and books. That definition is far too narrow. What I'm referring to here is collecting examples in your field that stand out. And so marketers collect websites, designers collect logos, copywriters collect headlines. I can tell you as a writer, I collect powerful stories. I collect good studies. I collect words that are moving that I feel it could be impactful later on. And having that collection allows you to do two things. One is it allows you to uh, vi- visit that collection the next time you need to create something new for inspiration. And two is it allows you to compare what's in your collection against what didn't make your collection. So it's kind of like playing spot the difference. Remember that game we played as, as kids where you'd have two images side by side, and you'd look for the discrepancies. That's what you're looking to do here by the items in your collection against those that didn't make it, comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary. And in doing that, you can't help but figure out what are the ingredients that make this unique. And it's all about having that mindset of asking yourself, what's different here? What can I learn from this? How was this created? How do I apply this to my field? And that's what that Priceline guy was doing. And it sounds like that's what you do as well, Jeff, when you're benchmarking. It's all about that mindset. But it's not just like, I don't want to say it's like mindset from like an attitude change. Like, no, there are concrete things you can do. You can create a Google Doc right now of examples that stand out for you. Maybe you're a speaker. Find some presentation decks. Maybe you're a marketer and you write proposals all the time. Collect some proposals that have won. Create a best of a directory for your companies that people can visit those when they want inspiration. And then the final step that I want to share is you can take those examples and you can templatize them. You can create templates. Ask yourself, what are the, what are the, what are the ingredients that went into creating this? And then turn them into questions for yourself. Remember I mentioned before, what's the startling fact? What's the what? What is the question I want to raise? What does the literature review say? That's what started me down this path in academic journal articles. But it's also how I again how I learned to write all everything else I write, and this is how in the book in decoding greatness I reverse engineer classic TED talks. I reverse engineer world class websites. I show I show you how to do this by even applying additional methodologies that. Uh, we can get into, which involve reverse outlining and quantifying features. There are so many techniques that you can use to and apply to any field that it's just remarkable. This is really going to open your eyes about how hidden patterns are, are staring you in the face. You just need to know where to look. I love that. I love that. So to recap, you really touched on three high-level 20% ideas. First, start a collection. This, by the way, was huge for me because I was sitting down to t- for my time blocks to benchmark something. And found myself going, what should I be benchmarking? <laughs> so we needed to start a collection, which I didn't realize that's what we were doing. And that's what we did. Second, spotting the difference. What are the things that separate the, the good from the great? And third, when you spot those trends, you actually can templatize the examples. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, critically, it's not just about copying somebody else's formula. One of the things I talk about in Decoding Greatness is that if you just copy somebody else's formula, chances are you will not be successful. That's for two reasons. Mm-hmm. One is that it's not always simple to replicate someone else's execution. For example, if I were to try to copy Gladwell style in writing, I probably will fail. And many authors have gone this down this path and have not been successful. And it's because he is so unique in his ability to find 
moving stories, but also to use just incredibly powerful language to bring those stories to life. The other element that prevents us from just copying somebody else's formula and being successful is that audience expectations shift with time. So what what have what was successful for someone else at one point, chances are will not necessarily be successful for you. So in the case of Gladwell, he was innovative in the early 2000s. If you read a Gladwellian style book today, it's going to feel derivative. And I give the example in the book of the book of the, of the book Twilight. When Twilight first came out, it was incredibly novel. But then uh, there was a flood of young adult books about teenagers in love with vampires, and all of them failed spectacularly. And it wasn't because they were all terrible books. It was because that formula was done. People were familiar with it. It wasn't surprising anymore. But what was successful is when someone took that formula and evolved a little bit. So teenagers in love with vampires didn't succeed. You know what succeeded? Abraham Lincoln is a vampire fighter. All of a sudden, that blew up. And so it's all about finding a a pattern that works and then evolving it just slightly to make it your own. Yeah, well, this was one of the hardest lessons that I learned early on in this company. We started as an online training company. And when we benchmarked other online training companies, they followed an internet marketing model, which there are clear, proven methods for that type of an approach. Well, you fast forward about a year and a half, and we looked up realizing we were following the proven model for that industry, and it was undermining our brand. Just because it was proven for the industry did not mean it was the right fit for our brand, which is when I realized, okay, having clarity on what your values are, being willing to say, great, I get that that is the approach that most people do, but what's the approach that's right for us that's in alignment with our values? And the moment we stopped doing most of the things we were doing, our revenue went way up. (laughs) It was crazy. And I would tell you that what's interesting about that insight that you had that is completely on point is to embrace your preferences. So in my case, I don't try to write like Gladwell, but I do like certain elements that he uses. Uh, But if I were to try to mimic it, it wouldn't work. And the reason it wouldn't work for me is not just because people now expect the Gladwellian formula, but for me, I find the long stories don't hold my attention as well as they might for other people. I find myself flipping to the pages to see what the actionable insight is. Mm. So I embrace that about myself, which is why my books have a lot of stories, but they're super short because I want to get to the actionable insight and I want to show you how to use it. And I, that, some people might consider that as uh, not as failing at the Gladwellian formula, or as you said, that you were failing at internet marketing. But you know what? I like it and it makes me distinctive. So that's what you want to embrace is you want to find a formula that works for you and it's going to be Part, you know, five parts, somebody else's formula, uh, two parts, another formula, and then 10 parts you. Yeah. So I want to pivot this to, to how somebody can use this in their personal life because we're huge on setting goals. We're big on accountability. And a lot of people struggle to track their progress on personal goals. Mm-hmm. It's easy if it's about reducing debt or losing weight. That's that's numerical. It's easy. But when it's something like, how do I become more present with my family? Mm-hmm. How do I become a better husband, father, wife, mother, whatever it might be? You have an approach for this. 
Yeah. So the first half of this book is about reverse engineering. The second half is about how to get good at stuff. So uh, how do you apply all of the insights we have from skill building to shrink the gap between your vision and ability? And that can be applied to everyday life as well. So the first chapter in the second half of the book is called the scoreboard principle. And the scoreboard principle is simple. Anything you measure, you are likely to improve on. And it's because numbers have a remarkable hold on our attention. And there are evolutionary reasons for this. In the evolutionary past, if you did not pay attention to numbers, you were lunch. (laughs) So if you didn't pay attention to how large a tribe was, that made you vulnerable. If you didn't pay attention to which quantity of food was larger, you didn't pursue it. So we are instinctively focused on numbers. And in fact, neurologists believe there is a, a unique area of the brain that is responsible for numerical tracking that is consistent across species, not just humans, species. And you can leverage that. This is, by the way, why numbers are so addicting to us. This is why we're obsessed with our Facebook count and how many people um, retweeted our tweets and uh, how much money we make. Even when we reach a certain point and we're comfortable, we continue to optimize for money. And it's because unless you know what you're optimizing for, you're going to fall to the default. And in our society, it's money or it can be followers or it can be influence of some level. And you mentioned how much easier it is to get better at weight or income, or whatever the case may be, that's numerical. And so the key here is to make numerical the thing that you want to succeed at and track your performance. You want to gamify it for yourself. So in the case of presence with your family, I would ask you, what are the features of being present with your family? What are the specific behaviors that that might include? It might be reading. Can we role play? Can we actually dive into this? Because I'm in the middle of a 66-day challenge on this. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, So I and I'll tell you why it matters. My daughter said something to me three, four months ago. She said, Daddy, um, you care about your work more than you care about us. And I mean, I mean, talk about straight to the chest. And I was like, honey, I, I asked a question. I said, honey, what are you talking about? And she just restated it. You care about your work more than you care about us. And I asked, why do you think that? And she said, well, I watch how much time you're working. And I see how much time with, you're with us. You work more than you're with us, which means you must value your work more than you value us. Mm-hmm. She's eight, by the way. Okay. I asked that question. Daddy's in, daddy's in trouble. Um, <laughs> and I firmly believe um, communication is the way it's received, not the intent. So I own it. Yeah. Which led me to when we launched our last 66 day challenge with our community, it's I, I need to. As the kids spell love, T-I-M-E. I need to form a habit that allows me to be more present with them. So it started by me just saying yes once a day when they would ask if I could play. Instead of saying, no, daddy's doing the dishes, I would just say yes and drop it. But I even found that that wasn't sufficient enough to drive the result. And so now I'm at the point where I'm staring at the door in my office when I walk before I get to walk out that door, I have to visualize myself being present with the family. Because if I can knock that domino down, it actually prepares me to be present with them. Now, take that as background and let's dive in and figure out how we make this more numerical. That's great. Now, I will say though, we should circle back to visualization because there's a section in the book on that that I think you'll find interesting. But um, 
in, in your case, I want to ask you to reverse engineer what are what's the perfect day with your kids. So let's take a weekday. Let's not take a weekend because there are a lot of variables sure. there. The perfect week weekday weeknight, and what what does spending time with your kids mean in terms of your actions? Sure, perfect weekday would be when I get back from the gym in the morning. The kids are still sleeping. They would wake up. We'd hug each other, kiss each other. I would help them make breakfast. And we would have a conversation about the day while they make breakfast. And we would sit down and we would actually eat breakfast together. Then they'd be off on their own to go get ready for school. I'd be getting ready for work. And we'd gather and hug and kiss each other once more before they get in the car and they're off to school. And then when they get home and I get off work, I truly am off work. Phone is not on me. I am actively engaged and playing with them and really having a moment with them. Length is less important than the fact that it is high quality while we're there. We have dinner together. Uh, We have a good conversation during dinner. My kids say what they're grateful for. They've been standing up on the chair and saying what they're grateful for, which is practicing speaking as well at the same time. Then we do do showers, do bedtime. I read them a bed. I And as they pass us, fall asleep, I, I do affirmations for them. Great. Very specific. So any one of those items that you just mentioned, you can turn into a question of how well did we have breakfast together? How well did mm. we do affirmations together? Did we play together? Those That's a very extensive metric. I would actually urge you to narrow it down to three to five items that are easy for you to do because otherwise it feels like work. Yes, how many? I want to narrow it down to. Okay, I don't know one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> How on, and that's the point. That's the point is when you start this, when you start identifying your metrics, you do not want a hundred items. You want to have a small, doable number so that it feels easy and rewarding. And critically, it's not enough just to have metrics. You want to evolve those metrics every quarter. They're not going to be the same metrics. If there are the same metrics, you're probably not growing. That's a problem. Um, some other tips I can offer you about metrics is that you also want to have some negative items. So, uh, you know, so, so what's the what's the what's the thing that if you're too good at, at a certain metric, there could be repercussions. So, did I neglect my work by spending too much with my kids? That might be uh. an item because for some people, that's a way of procrastinating and escaping is 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 going too far on that item. It's going to be different for every person, but the key is to track the metrics because the more uh, attention you give these metrics, the better you'll get. In fact, there's a study in the book that I talk about that shows. This is a study out of Kaiser Permanente where they had people come in and follow a diet. And what they found was the group that was keeping a food diary on top of the diet lost more weight with the same diet as the group that didn't have a food diary. And it's because just tracking their food consumption made them more mindful of having of of the choices they made because they knew they have to report it at the end of the day. So Mm -hmm. it's less like if you if you keep I don't know if you do this with your community. I I know I I do this with with my group is that. We'll do time tracking. And invariably, the, just the exercise of doing the time tracking makes you for, forces you to use your time more responsibly because if you're not tracking your time, you can go and spend a half hour on TikTok after lunch. But if you have to report that on a timesheet to yourself, you're embarrassed to do that and you make better decisions. I'm literally sitting here with a cupcake below my <laughs> desk <laughs> as you're talking about food training. I'm like, oh, I so would not eat that if I had to write that down. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's, That's the true. point. So true. I think I'm still going to eat it, by the way. 
<laughs> do you want to talk about visualization? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so there's a very interesting study in uh, in the book about visualization and why it actually makes you worse if you're not doing it correctly. So what do we hear yeah. on the internet nonstop? Visualize success, visualize success, right? What happens when you visualize success is you actually are less likely to be successful. So I'll give you a study that backs this up. This is a study done out of UCLA where they had introductory psychology students about to take a midterm. Group one divided them into three groups. Group one was told to visualize themselves getting a great score. Group two was asked to visualize themselves studying for the test. And group three was asked to just track the number of hours that they spent studying. And what they found was compared to the other two groups, the group that visualized getting a high score did worse than the other two groups. Why? Because when you visualize success, you are temporarily sated. You feel the 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 emotions the positive emotions and the satisfaction that comes from succeeding you don't do the work in contrast visualizing yourself doing the work makes you more likely to follow through and and it's part of it is because you're now front loading decisions you're not thinking about oh what do i where do i what am i going to need to study where do i need to go because you visualize yourself doing the work you front loaded the decisions you're more likely to execute and you're more likely to be present which is why i love your example so you are visualizing yourself before you leave the office being present with your family you're front loading what you'll need to do the decisions you need to make maybe it's hide your phone maybe it's leave yeah. your phone in the car those types of things that make you better equipped to follow through so that you can actually be with your family when you get home. There's another tie here that I'm realizing with the one thing. When people do a 411, when we have people in companies adopt this model where it's no longer just, here's your annual goals, but they've got to break those down into monthly goals, which they break down into weekly activities. Not weekly goals, not weekly results, weekly activities. Sometimes they struggle at the beginning because turning a result into the activity they will do to drive the result, they're not always clear how to bridge their gap. And their mind is not wired that way yet. But once they are and they're clear, it's not just, I'm going to accomplish this thing this week. It's these are the tactical things I will do that will lead to me accomplishing that to the point that I can open up my calendar and show time blocks where I'm going to do those things. Now they're having the relationship with their goals. Now they're becoming the person they need to become to achieve what they want to achieve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love that because what you're doing there is you're forcing them to make the connection between the outcome and the behaviors, which is what really we're doing when we're quantifying our, our metrics. When we find our metrics, we're forced to think about I didn't ask you, what is it, you know, how would you feel if you felt more present? I'm sure that would be great. I don't care. What I care about is what are the behaviors that define presence for you because that I can measure and I can quantify anything. I'm a researcher, so I believe we can quantify anything as long as we get specific enough with our questions. I love that. I love that. You've got an interesting story in the book about Tinder and how that relates to decoding greatness. Walk us through that. So how Tinder gets good at figuring out who you're going to find attractive is it asks you to rate a few people at the beginning. Uh, you have to swipe right. If you like them, swipe left. If you don't like them. And then what Tinder does is it takes the examples of the people you have found attractive and it looks for commonalities. And what makes for it makes Tinder so powerful is it's, avail it's able to, through its algorithm, identify commonalities that you consciously may not even be aware of. So you may be swiping right or left depending on what you consider attractiveness. But what Tinder can then identify is perhaps 
all the people you've selected are of particular height or have a particular personality characteristics or have something in their profile, like they mm. like spicy food, that you had no idea that was the thing you found attractive. And what that teaches us is that how algorithms get good at identifying patterns is having examples. Without the examples of the people that you found attractive, Tinder's algorithm is fairly useless. Same is true for all of us. We need those examples of greatness so that we can work backward to figure out what makes them unique. And obviously, identify some of those patterns, templatize them, execute against them, evolve them. It all starts with the collection. And that Tinder story illustrates that so powerfully. Same is true for Spotify, by the way. Spotify has this great... I don't know if you use Spotify. Do you use Spotify, Jeff? I do every morning when I jump rope. Do you use Discovery Weekly? No. Okay, I'm about to blow your mind. So you got to look up Discovery Weekly. Every Monday, Spotify will select for you. This is just for you. A selection of songs that is based on the songs you have listened to and liked in the past. It's using an algorithm to identify the features of songs that you may not even be aware of make those songs interesting to you. And if you go through that for a few weeks, the beginning, it may not be perfect. If you go through it a few weeks and you like the songs within Discovery Weekly, you're training your algorithm to select songs for you. I can tell you every Monday, I get a good 10 solid songs that are in my collection that I never would have found in a million years had it not been for that algorithm. Is it Discover Weekly or Discovery Weekly? Must be Discover Weekly then. So I I just searched Discover Weekly, your weekly mixtape of Fresh. Okay. I'm going to check this out. There you go. That's on Monday. And on Fridays, there's new release radar. And if you look that up, those are artists whose songs you've liked in the past, anything they've put out that week that shows up on new release radar. It's good. It's good. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. that's how I built my jump rope mix over time is listening to certain artists and having them recommend other ones. And the ones I really like, I throw into the playlist and then I just go crazy. Right. That's fun. <laughs> All right, cool. So let's five to 10,000 feet. And the way you do that, you simply... You gave us three steps. Step one, start a collection. Step two, spot the differences. And then step three, templatize the examples so that you can apply them to your life. Exactly right. And, and what I will say about Spot the Difference is there's a lot more in the book that we've covered here. There are other techniques you can use to identify the big features, uh, identify what stands out, and just to give you a taste for some of these. So in the book, I reverse engineered Ken Robinson's TED Talk. Ken Robinson has the most popular TED Talk of all time. And what you find when you reverse engineer it is that over the course of 20 minutes, he shares a grand total of one fact. He's got the most popular TED Talk of all time. It's gone viral. uh, And he's got one fact. Now, if I was writing a TED Talk from scratch, I would assume that I need to throw in some really crazy, you know, persuasive facts to get people engaged. But in fact, what you find when you reverse engineer his talk, he's got a grand total of one. What does he do a lot of? He has a ton of storytelling. He's got a lot of anecdotes. And you get that insight, not by watching or not by listening, not by reading the transcript, but by reverse engineering and looking for the features in the talk. And again, spotting the difference, comparing his talk against talks that haven't gone viral, you see where he's over-representing on anecdotes and under-representing on facts. That's what this allows you to do is find the key differences, identify patterns, and utilize that those insights to create something new. I love that. I love that. All right. Where can people learn more about you? 
best place to go to find out more about this book is decodinggreatnessbook.com. The reason I share that website is because you'll get a free course on how to apply the strategies when you get a book. You can get the book anywhere. Just share your receipt. You'll get a free course. Uh, you can find out more about me at ronfriedmanphd.com and at my company's website, Ignite. 80, that's ignite80.com. And the reason it's called Ignite 80 is because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And the mission of Ignite 80 is to teach leaders science-based strategies for elevating people's performance, happiness, and health at work. I love that. Well, thanks so much for investing your time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Our conversation with Ron Friedman. I really enjoyed this conversation just because... One, the, the alignment with the one thing. And two, the simplicity of it. We all know what it feels like to have big goals for ourselves, to feel like we're meant for more and to not be satisfied with where we are at. And it can get frustrating when you work hard to bridge that gap from where you are and where you think you should be. Yet it doesn't have to be. And part of that is getting out of doing it based on your natural abilities. Stop doing it based on how you would naturally approach it and start relying on those that have gone before you. The examples of other people or other organizations that have achieved something extraordinary, reverse engineering how they did it so that you can spot the difference and see what is it that they did differently? What's that difference that made the difference? And how can I put that into a simple plan that I can then execute in my life or inside our organization. Based on everything you heard in this conversation, what's the one thing you can do? Such that by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary. Will you be the type of person who actually pauses the episode and searches for that answer? Because if you do, you guarantee that this was actually an investment of your time and not an expense. If this episode has brought value to you, please think of somebody that you know that needs to hear it. Share it with them. It could make all the difference for them. If you're new to the show, press the subscribe button so all future episodes are automatically downloaded to your podcast player of choice. And if you would consider leaving us a rating and review, it means the world to us. We read everyone and it genuinely helps us reach more people and live our purpose, which is to help you better invest your time so you can achieve extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.